Good morning. My name is Jesse. I am the youth pastor here, and I have the privilege of continuing a message series we are in called Both And. And our topic today is science and faith. And so uh, it's with no hesitation that I want to start by asking God for help. So would you join me uh, as we do that? Father, we are grateful for moments to, to gather and celebrate who you are, what you've done. And I pray over the next couple minutes as we look at these massive categories of thinking that we would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I don't know if you uh, like movies or storytelling as much as me, but there's, there's a, a very familiar plot device that's used uh, a lot to keep audiences engaged. It's true in books. It's true in TV shows as well. It's where the writer takes two characters or two groups of characters that you love and kind of sets them in opposition to one another, you know, pits them against uh, each other. Uh, this is kind of the, the basic plot of every kind of rom-com, isn't it? You, you know, they're supposed to be together. What's going on? Okay, it works out at the end. And, and it's like, what's, uh, you're, as an audience member, you're watching tension like that, and you're thinking, this should not be the way it is. Uh, recently, I was in the movie theater, watched the same thing happen again. You know, you got characters, uh, people coming together in group A, uh, other characters come together in group B. They both are heading to one destination to confront the villain of the movie, uh, but they don't know each other are going to do that. So when they show up, uh, A and B think both A and B are the villain. They're there to fight. And so naturally that gets them into conflict with one another. And as the viewer, you're going, stop it. Don't hurt each other. Don't punch him there. Like, what are you doing? You guys are supposed to be friends. You're supposed to be allies. You're working for the same purpose. And I think when it comes to this, this plot line, I see it written all throughout our culture, especially in the topics of science and faith where it's like these two things cannot coexist. They, they're, they're opposite, it seems, is, is the plot of our world. Uh, when I graduated high school, a couple years afterwards, I met up with a friend of mine. Uh, he went on to study uh, engineering. I went on to study the Bible. Two very different fields of study. I mean, the only thing similar probably is that there's nerds in both. But what happened was, you know, we grab a couple burgers, and we're talking about life, we're catching up, and he says to me, so why are you... This is where the conversation got really awkward. I'm like really taking a long sip of my milkshake at this point. He's like, why are you doing the Bible school thing? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I believe it's true. I believe in God and I, and I think this is, is transformative for my life and, and I really want to get to know him better. And what do you believe? And he looks at me and goes, well, I, I don't believe in that. I believe in stuff that's supported by fact, like science. And what I realized in that conversation, as it didn't go anywhere very useful, was that both he and I didn't understand our positions very well. And anytime you have this sort of tension, whether it's in a movie, whether it comes from faith or science, it's because there's a disconnect with the truth of reality. And, uh, you know, you see this in, in, in popular scientists who say stuff like this. This is a quote from Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, who said that there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and science, which is based on observation and reason. Science will win because it works. Another uh, famous scientist, Carl Sagan, an astronomer, said the suppression of uncomfortable ideas may be common in religion or politics, but it's not the path to knowledge, and there's no place for it in the endeavor of science. See, for me, I look at these statements and I go, well, of course not. Of course there shouldn't be, and there shouldn't be in the church either. We can't suppress uncomfortable ideas. We go where the truth leads us, and it fits together. 
Our point this morning is going to be this, is that we can be both people who value science and have faith in God because science gives us confidence for belief and cause for worship. Confidence for belief and cause for worship. There's a bunch of places we could go this morning in Scripture. If you could just go to Romans chapter 1, one of the passages we're going to look at and and build our case from there, Uh, one of Paul's letters to the Romans. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 of chapter 1, where he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. And verse 20, and here's our big claim for this morning, where God says, uh, my invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, the Bible all throughout, especially in this claim of Romans 1.20, is not to run away from science. It's an invitation to explore the universe. It's an invitation to explore geology and chemistry and physics and biology and cosmology, all of these things, because what God is saying is, these will lead you to me. They're to show you who I am. They're to show you my eternal power, my divine nature. And this is an extraordinary claim. There's a saying in science that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so that's what we want to do this morning is look at, okay, well, is there any evidence in science that leads us to have faith in God, let alone confident faith? And there's good news for us is that, yes, our faith is not just built on a feeling or, or some sort of meaningful encounter we have with, with people in the church or not. There's actually good reason for it. I love the way uh, the director of Apologetics Canada, Andy Steiger, defines faith. He says, faith is simply uh, believing what we have good reason to believe is true. It's trusting what we have good reasons for. And that's what we say as Christians. We have that, especially because of claims like Romans 1.20. So where should we go? What can we do? Uh, can Can we test this claim at all? Well, let's test it. Uh, The first thing we can find, if we're going to test this claim that all science will lead us to him and that it gives us a confident belief in him, uh, we can look at two uh, major pieces of evidence, and we only have time for two. There's tons. Uh, But let's just look at this first one. Science tells us that the universe has a beginning. There's, There's philosophical, residual, theoretical, thermal, observational, quantitative evidence that it has an origin. And this is, this is mind-boggling uh, because it used to be the thought was that the universe was the eternal thing, the all-powerful thing that got everything started. It was the source of everything. It was the thing that determined the, the origin of you and me and all of the sciences that we see. And all that got kind of flipped around when science showed us that, no, the universe is not eternally old and, and all-powerful like that. It itself has a beginning, So let's just go uh, back about 100 years and do a kind of a 100-year timeline uh, through some scientific discoveries, all the way back starting in 1914. 
A man named uh, Vesto Sliffer used spectrograph readings of objects in space. And he discovered that if objects moved towards the Earth, they shifted the color reading towards the blue end of the spectrograph spectrum. And if they moved away from the Earth, they shifted towards red. See, what he noticed is that some objects in space and some nebulae, they were shifting towards red, which was strange. They're moving away from the Earth. A couple years later, in 1916, Albert Einstein applied his theory of relativity to the cosmos, and his calculations suggested that the universe was not eternally old and unchanging. It pointed to a beginning. In the 1920s, Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman used Einstein's theories and developed a mathematical model predicting that the universe was expanding. And anything that expands, you know, it, it comes from an originating point. This started to get really interesting in the scientific world. 1927, Georges Lemaitre, an astrophysicist and professor, proposed that the universe had a beginning from which it was expanding. And by 1929, what's called the greatest scientific discovery of the 20th century happened when Edwin Hubble used all of this information and calculated that stars and galaxies that were moving away from Earth picked up speed, basically meaning we've proven that the universe, through science, has a beginning. In the 1940s, other uh, astronomers like Fred Hoyle calculated that the amount of helium in the universe was consistent with it having a beginning. In the 1970s, physicists and astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson won a Nobel Prize for discovering the existence of cosmic background radiation. All of this lined up with the fact that the universe had uh, an originating point full of tremendous heat, density, and expansion. Another scientist, the U.S. director of the uh, Institutes of National Health, said, and he's an award-winning scientist who, who mapped the human genome, and he said that I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. Science points to the fact that the universe has a beginning, and us who have faith in God go, well, yes! That's what, from the very beginning, like literally the very beginning of this book, the first lines are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he was there. In the beginning, he got this whole thing started. Heavens and earth, basically meaning everything you can possibly calculate, observe, experiment with, or see. He was that one who started it all. Well, is there any other categories of evidence? Because that's, that's a really big one. Uh, there's another big category that we'll spend some time on here. Uh, and it's that science shows us that the universe is finely tuned. Uh, an English physicist uh, who's agnostic about belief in God, so he's not sure what it all points to, but he says everybody, his name's Paul Davies, says that everybody in science pretty much agrees that the universe appears like it is fine-tuned to sustain life. In his book, uh, The Problem of God, Mark Clark says that astrophysicists tell us there are around 122 variables that would have had to come into existence, and that if any of those was off by even one part in a million millionth, matter would not have been able to coalesce. So not only do 122 you know, dials have to somehow exist, these 122 dials also have to be tuned into precise values in order to give us the scientific readings that we have of the universe. If this was an unguided process outside of, of God, I've heard, I've heard the analogy given where it's like if you were to take God out of the equation, the odds of all this happening are like a tornado ripping through a junkyard and creating a perfectly functioning Boeing 747. 
Like that's that, I'm already game over, all right? Okay, like I'm done at that point. Astronomical odds. Here's one of the dials uh, described by Stephen Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time. And this is on the expansion rate of the universe and what he calls uh, the Big Bang. And he says that if the expansion rate one second after this supposed Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. And that's just one dial. This whole expansion rate that, that they were calculating in, in the world of science that showed the universe had a beginning, it is exquisitely finely balanced, not too fast, not too slow, just perfect in order for this universe to exist. There's other crazy things, and I've just got a short list. Remember, there's a long list of 122 variables. Here's a couple more. The constants and proportions of the strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and the force of gravity, they all have to exist in very specific ways. Life would not exist if the ratio of protons and electrons was different. Life wouldn't exist if the ratio between the forces of electromagnetism and gravity was different. Life wouldn't exist if the Milky Way galaxy that you and I are in on Earth was a different shape, which is also weird, by the way, because out of the whole observable universe, only 5% are this spiral shape that the Milky Way galaxy is. Life wouldn't exist if the Milky Way was in a different position uh, to other galaxies and cosmic clusters. Life wouldn't exist if it, we weren't in the spiral arm of the galaxy because that arm protects us from the core radiation of the sun. Life wouldn't exist if the Milky Way was a different size. Life wouldn't exist if our sun was made of different matter. Life wouldn't exist if we had more than one sun. Life wouldn't exist if the age of our sun was different. Life wouldn't exist if the mass of our sun was different. Life wouldn't exist if there wasn't the right amount of planets in our solar system. Life wouldn't exist if the earth was in a different position from the sun. Life wouldn't exist if the atmosphere had the right ratio of oxygen and nitrogen. Life also couldn't exist if the earth's crust or a different thickness, as that creates problems with carbon dioxide, volcanic activity. Look, that's a lot of variables that have to exist in a very precise, finely tuned way. Are you starting to get a confident, reasonable belief that God can come into the scientific equation here? That belief in him isn't shutting off our minds to science, it's actually engaging science properly. It's no wonder the popular scientists like astrophysicist and uh, the, the host of the, the rebooted uh, TV show Cosmos, Neil deGrasse Tyson, says that, hey, there is a lot of mysteries in science, but one of the greatest unsolved mysteries is the origin of life. Science is saying that. So no matter what scientific position you take, you are always left with a faith position. Either it's, okay, well, we don't know how it happened, so we're just going to have faith that there's some explanation out there that we haven't discovered yet. Or, as we do in the church, we say, by faith, as Hebrews 11 would tell us, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By the word of God. It's kind of, you know, all of, even just these two categories, the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, it really starts to make sense and in correlation to Romans 1.20, doesn't it? At this point, even just these two categories leave us with not a lot of space to ignore God. Not a lot of reasonable space where God says, you're without excuse, you can, you can go check this stuff out. You read places like 
Job uh, chapters 38 to 41, there's a lot of interesting sciencey language in there. You know, God stretching out the heavens and, and determining, you know, the, the cornerstone of the earth and, and drawing a surveying line, cutting channels for lightning and, and paths for rain and sustaining animal life, like just crazy stuff. Both science and the Bible kind of tell us that, hey, the deeper you go in science, the more reason you have for trusting God, not less. The further and further you go, you actually led towards him, not away from him. For years, scientists have been searching for a theory of everything, some sort of unifying single explanation to bring together the theories of quantum mechanics and general relativity. And uh, a former homicide detective named J. Warner Wallace, he, he applied his investigative tools to the universe as if the universe and all the, the scientific findings were like a big crime scene. And here's what his conclusion was, that the evidence we've identified in the universe is best explained by an external suspect. Given the nature of this evidence, our suspect is clearly non-spatial, atemporal, non-material, and uncaused. Our suspect is also powerful enough to create everything we see in the universe and purposeful enough to produce a universe fine-tuned for life. Only one being can be described in this way. Only one suspect can reasonably explain the evidence in our crime scene. This is God's crime scene. I love where God says in Isaiah 45, I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and commanded all their host. See, all of the stuff that where, I, where I put science and scripture, where I put science and faith together, makes me kind of look back in, in my childhood for you know, heroes like, like science guy Bill Nye, who's like, hey, you, know, you can't bring God into science class. He's got to stay in history class or religion class or philosophy class. And I'm like, whoa, 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 Bill, 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 stop. Stop it, Bill! Right? God makes sense with all this. In fact, God actually, if you take God out of science class, science seems so much less than if you were there. Scientific study of the origin and fine-tuning of the universe gives us immense confidence for belief in God. We didn't even cover a ton of other categories like human consciousness and, and morality and all that. This is just scientific study of just two categories. And it's already a lot to back up the claim of Romans 120 that we can clearly see it's reasonable to believe in God. But not only does it give us confidence for belief, it gives us cause for worship. And worship is, is anything we do where we're expressing worth for something or someone. And I believe that the things that we are most amazed by trigger us for worship, motivate us for worship. And science, if it's revealing all the stuff about the universe and about what God's done, about who he is, about his character, his eternal power and divine nature, as Romans 1 says, there's a lot to be amazed by. For example, and just, just one example, I wish we had time for more, but space itself, stars themselves. Like, I, for me, I, I love anything with space travel, documentaries on space, the moon landing, really anything set in a galaxy far, far away. That is my jam. And I'm just loving anything to do with, with stars and nebulas and galaxies. And one of the amazing things about the galaxy is how astronomically large it is. So just for, just for the purpose of an illustration here, let's say we scaled down the entire universe so that we could kind of map out just the distance between our Earth and our closest star, the Sun. So 
for the purpose of this, I've got a pen. Let's say the tip of this pen it represents the earth. This is, this is where the earth is going to be. So we'll just place it down right here. Now, what we would need to do to demonstrate its distance in this smaller scale uh, on the stage here uh, to represent its distance from the sun would be we would have to say, okay, well, the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. So in this scale, we have to go about 15 feet to represent that 93 million miles. Now, Already 93 million miles is way too big a number, like especially for this section over here, right? Too big a number. And, and I'm already going like, man, that's, that's a lot. But what if we just went one step further? What if we went, okay, well, that's huge, 93 million miles. What if we just went one more star, like the next closest after the sun? It's called Proxima Centauri. And its distance from the Earth is a bit bigger than 93 million miles. Its distance is 4.2, 4.3 light years from the Earth. So if I were to walk this, uh, to set it down, I would have to walk through this wall. I'd have to walk you know, down past Chilliwack. I'd have to keep going past Hope. I'd have to eventually get through the prairies, get through Banff, take some great pictures of the mountains. I'd have to keep going through Calgary. I'd have to go past Saskatoon really quickly, by the way, through Saskatchewan. And then I eventually, eventually, I would have to put this down in Winnipeg. Like I would have to just throw this thing all the way to Winnipeg in order for the scale to be right. And that's just one more star, the next closest, 4.3 light years away. In their book, uh, Indescribable, Louis Giglio and Matt Remen say that with our best instruments of technology, we've calculated objects a bit more than 93 million miles, a bit more than 4.3 light years. We've calculated objects 13 billion light years from Earth. And I'm starting to go, man, the God that says he's behind all this is a God of unrivaled power and magnitude. You stack a God up of this size against your anxiety and see what happens. You stack a God of this size, you, you just put all your life's problems in, in one stack and you, and you put God, the universe breathing God, like we read in Psalm 33, that he merely spoke and this happened. Breathe a breath and the stars were formed. And Psalm 19, the heavens declare his glory. Look, you want to get to know the weight and worth of God, you do science, you find out all of this immense stuff, you stack that up against anything you are going through, you go, man, my problems are way smaller than I thought, and my God is way bigger than I thought. Way bigger. And not just any God, by the way. Specifically, Jesus specifically Jesus. Just, just a couple places in scripture we can find. Uh, Hebrews chapter one says, through whom? Through Jesus, God created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You think he can't speak a word of power over your life in comparison to the universe? John 1, all things are made through Jesus and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. 
Colossians 1, for by Jesus, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Basically, what I'm seeing from scientific study and from study of scripture is that if you love Jesus, you had better like science. And if you like science, you can love Jesus because he's the one that stands behind it all. The same Jesus who created man and saw that, that they had a huge problem when they rebelled against God, spiritual death. The same Jesus that says, I'm going to enter their story while they're still my enemies. I'm going to become a man when I could spend my time doing millions of other things in the billions of other places in the universe. I'm going to come down. I'm going to live their experience. I'm going to live a perfect life they can't so that when I die a death in their place, I can exchange my righteousness for their wrong. The same Jesus who then rose from the dead on the third day after that and now can speak a word of power over our lives and bring us to life like he breathed life into the galaxies and universe. That same Jesus. For me, science is one of the greatest worship leaders there is because it points me to the God behind it all. We can both value science and have faith in God because it gives us confidence for belief and cause for worship, right worship. Like Romans 1.20, the whole chapter of Romans isn't concerned just with right belief, but right worship, pointing us to the right specific direction. So three things this morning that we can do with this both and reality. The first is that we can use our doubts. We can use our confusions. We can use our frustrations and our curiosity to find God. And I know for a lot of my growing up years, it seemed like if I have doubts about something, I got to kind of hide that. I got to pretend like I have it all together. If I'm curious about something, I can't ask those questions. Well, why? The invitation is there from God. The invitation is there to come and know me. Look, I know, I know well, we didn't cover the dinosaurs this morning or the fossil record or, well, the age of the earth or all this stuff. We didn't cover all that. But if, if God is behind that all, then whatever line of study we have should lead us back to him. All truth is his. It has to be. So logically then, if we're having inconsistencies between science and scripture, between studying and between faith, what we ought to assume logically then, if God is behind it all, is that either one of these tools or both is being used incorrectly. Either science or faith is being misread and we can come back because logically, God is the one behind it all and he's inviting us to know him. Use your doubts. Use your curiosity. It's been said atheism can only be sustained by a lack of curiosity, which makes sense based on the claim of Romans 1. The second thing we can do is we can share Jesus with confidence. Look, there are people in your life, there are people in my life that need to know there's something to Christianity beyond just the fact that you got coffee in church, you got a comfortable seat to sit in, you got some new friends, it made you feel good, the band was really awesome, the speaker threw in a couple of jokes. No, they need more than that. They need to know there's reasons that we actually hold these beliefs. And we have those. So study science, study philosophy, study history and scripture. Because all of this gives us a reason for the hope that we have in us 
And we need to be ready with that, as 1 Peter tells us. And finally, we, we can ask big things of God. Like, look, if a God of this size is the one we get to talk to, that we have bold access to commune with, walk with, pray to because of our faith and relationship with Jesus. How small are our prayers so often? Like, well, God, if you can do something here, uh, maybe just could you jump in and intervene here? It's like, look, I, I mean, I probably could. I spoke Proxima Centauri to be 4.3 light years away. I, may, I maybe could find time for that. Like, look, if, if we're living in a universe, as science has shown us, where there is natural processes and a supernatural God behind those processes, then miracles are on the table for us. You can, you can ask him to, to, to repair damaged cells in your body because he spoke those cells out of nothing to begin with. How big are the prayers you are praying Maybe the biggest prayer, maybe the biggest need we need to pray into is for new life in relationship with him. It is staggering to me that a God of this power, of this nature, wants to know us, wants to talk to us, wants to lead us, wants to bring us to life, and ultimately the goal of the gospel is to be with us. Maybe we need to ask him to give us new life, breathe new life into us, put our trust in him as our rescuer and our ruler through Jesus. Not just because it feels good or feels right, but because we have good reason to do so. Father, I'm grateful that we can value science and have faith in you. I'm grateful that there's confident belief that backs up your word Your word is supported by what we find. May that change us. May we ask big things of you. May we know you more. How amazing it is that even here sitting in this room, you want to meet with us. Thank you for the invitation. Amen.